I'm Margaret Tavares. I'm Dan Sapelsa. Today, we're talking about software professionalism and other topics highlighted in Uncle Bob Martin's book, Clean Coder. You're listening to episode 23 of Torqued. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Today, we are joined once again by some some Torqued podcast veterans. We have uh, Lucas Gladding and Brian Hogg joining us. Welcome, gentlemen. Once Thank again. you. Welcome back to the show. Good day, good day. So today we thought our discussion would – we've done a, a, a book review episode in the past of one of uh, uh, Bob Martin's, Uncle Bob's um, books, Clean Architecture. And today, not really kind of the same slant as in terms of a book review, but we, our discussion is going to center around a lot of the topics in Bob Martin's book, Clean Coder. And in a nutshell, I think the message of this book is about software professionalism. And there's a lot of topics that center around like, you know, different ways to approach your job as a software developer to ensure that, you know, you produce working software, you, you work well within a team, it's maintainable over time, all those sorts of things. So yeah, not really a review of the book, but we thought we'd, you know, kind of touch on some of the topics that, that Uncle Bob talks about here. In addition uh, to that too, I feel like we've talked about something like this on our previous podcast, just making sure your mannerisms, everything in the office, kind of just controlling the environment you work in. Mm -hmm. I would say it's a big kind of wrapping what this whole episode is about as well. Yeah. Using the loudest mechanical keyboard you can possibly find. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that, <laughs> So I guess starting off for anybody, is there was there sort of like a resounding message that came from this book for you or, or some strong, a strong takeaway or takeaways that you got from the book? I think for me, the biggest thing, some of this will maybe come out in later discussion, but one of the things Uncle Bob does is equate the software profession with doctors and lawyers and accountants and saying we really need to hold ourselves to that same kind of standard. So when we're producing our code, we know that we're the best informed that we can possibly be. And, and there's a lot of things that go into that message. But I think it's, to me, if I had to summarize, it's about taking yourself more seriously than maybe we tend to normally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Margot, did you have any uh, takeaways? Yeah, the one chapter that really hit me that really hits close to home was being able to say no to things. Mm. Sometimes I find myself to be so overloaded and I wonder, how did I get this many responsibilities? And, you know, you want to be that person that always says yes to everything, that shows you have a great aptitude, you have great attitude towards everything. And sometimes that gets me in a little bit of trouble when deadlines arrive and you're like, oh, I guess I signed myself up for way too much. And, uh, yeah. Then it leads to more disappointment than actual gain. So yeah. that's my, that's what really hit home for me. But we can go into that as well. <laughs> what even, about you, Brian? Even, well, even part of that, like that chapter mm -hmm. was the um, the part on uh, saying like you're, you've committed to a project, but then they're like, oh, we need this this feature added by Friday you know, or by Monday for this launch. Can you do it? Right. Right. Without like, even talking to your team first, right? right? <laughs> it's like it's saying no. And then like he gave the example of like, how do you say yes to that while also saying like protecting your own mental health, right? Like being like, right. okay, I'll do that. I'll work a bunch extra, but then I'm going to need Tuesday off. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. Wednesday I have to recover because I know I'm going to be fried and I won't be able to be a professional coder at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of so thing, kind right? of weighing out the pros and cons of each answer you deliver, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, no, that, that totally jumped out for me as well. And I'm sure we'll talk about more, but yeah, the other mm -hmm. tidbit or, or thing that like almost was like a punch in the face was, the, was the, like, you, you should be working 40 hours at your job and then you should also be working 20 hours, you know, but it's going to be, it's fun. It's going to be fun, you know, cause it's 20 hours, like of whatever you want to work on and it's outside of your normal work stuff. So 
you know, but you got to do that. And I'm like doing the math in my head. I'm like, okay, well, okay. What's, what's 20 hours if I just do weekdays. Okay. So that's 20 divided by five, it's four hours a night. <laughs> you know, like, how, do I, how do I do that and eat and, you know, play sports, yeah, and, like, exercise, like right? <laughs> like how, how do I do it? Like I'm granted it'd probably be fun. You know, like I do enjoy coding, but how do I do that? Or maybe I'll do it on a week. Okay. Three hours a night. And then like five, six, seven hours on a, on a Saturday. I'm like, whoa, you know, like, so, and then it's, and then it's that whole like imposter syndrome. Like, well, I'm not doing that. Is everyone else doing that? Like, you know, like, or I'm not doing that every week necessarily. Right. So then, you know, yeah, my, a professional coder, you know, if I'm at a workplace where, where you're doing 40 hours a week of coding and then you're expected to do that kind of thing. So yeah, I guess that was a work-life balance, imposter syndrome, like, you know, and then, yeah. Do you, do you need to do that or can you learn on the job a bit while also providing client benefit? Exactly. I guess to work our way around the table, Dan, was there anything that kind of spoke out to you? Um, not one thing in particular. I mean, I think just just as like I was saying to Lucas, like even I think for any developer, if you could kind of like look through the titles of the chapters, even the subheadings of the chapters, um, I don't even think he needs to dig into the chapters to kind of probably get the the message of what he's going to be talking about there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was just just a lot of takeaways of like. A lot of times I found myself going, yep, kind of nodding my head and we were like, yeah, I've probably been guilty of that in the past. And um, yeah, that's 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 probably the way to, the way to approach it. So just a lot of stuff that kind of hit home and sort of maybe reaffirmed to me stuff that I kind of knew but wasn't always um, maybe implementing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing, too, that I'm really interested in is reading this book with different experience levels, like reading this book as a beginner in coding and not knowing what like the bad mm-hmm. and good habits are and knowing what your own self like strengths and weaknesses are as well. And seeing that, like for me, understanding um, how evident saying no, how hard that is for me, mm-hmm. like that kind of spoke out to me. But for people like you guys, you guys are seniors who've been in the industry for more than 10 years now, I guess. Right. So I mean, 20. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it just it's interesting take uh, understanding that standpoint where you guys are at. Yeah, the you know it's interesting. I, I was sometimes trying to put myself back in like my first day as a web developer and looking through some of the you know the messages here, it's like I feel like half of the stuff I couldn't have put into practice at that time. Uh, my, my my first dev job, I was for the first eight months, I was the only developer there, kind of fresh out of school. And there was a lot of learning on the job and, and you know, forget trying to test my application and then implement design patterns. I'm just trying to figure out how to make this thing work, right? <laughs> and there's the one spot uh, where he talks about, you know, practicing outside of work and, and putting in work. And I certainly agree with that. Um, I think it's nice, you know, your your employer should be supportive in terms of your education. And that doesn't mean that you do, you know, tons of learning on the job necessarily, but but certainly, I think some learning on the job should be expected and, and hopefully support from your employer in terms of, uh, you know, going to conferences and things like that that you think will help kind of level up your skills. But um, he talks about like the senior and kind of junior paradigm and how he he expects in sort of a professional environment that the more senior experienced people um, are helping to sort of level up the junior people. And I think for me, that, that would have been a, probably a, a, a bigger help earlier in my career if I had that opportunity. Um, to to work with a more senior person who who had experience with some of this stuff and probably could have instilled some better practices in me off off the get the get go, um, and I think that's been a, a big appeal of of me working at Vehicle is having such a, a experienced team around um, and there's always someone who has experience with whatever you're working on that you can kind of discuss uh, details with. Yeah. 
Plus it like rapidly or, or cuts the learning curve too, right? Yeah, <laughs> like you, for you sure. can uh, struggling with something more means you'll probably retain it better. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like if you can sit down with someone and go like, and like, hey, you've been using Vue for like two years, like or whatever. How long has Vue been out for two years? Oh, at uh, least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and you know, it, having them walk you through like creating a new component and stuff can like save you potentially hours of trolling through documentation and tutorials and experimentation mm-hmm. and actually be able to then ask questions too, right? As opposed to documentation where you can't necessarily do that as well. So, um, yeah, it can really cut the learning curve, which is kind of. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and I think, I think really the biggest help from someone who's more experienced working with somebody with le- less experience is giving them the shortcut through that path that you've had, because most of us, like the more experience we've had, the more mistakes we've made which is why it's so easy to pick up things like I'm not going to write code this way because I've been bitten 10 times before from doing that same thing. Um, and juniors don't need to necessarily make that same mistake if you can guide through it. And I mean, that's one of the coolest things about this book. I think that more so than his others, it's, it's, I'd probably say 50% of the book is him telling stories about things that he's done over his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not, it doesn't really serve as a bio. It is a very legitimate way of guiding you through the lessons I think that he's trying to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, And definitely as a junior beginner in this industry, understanding how a senior wants to help you, I think is really important as well, especially when you're working side by side with somebody, especially when you and I work side by side together. Those two hours. Yeah. (laughs) Even though like I didn't really, I wasn't really familiar with um, like working together with other people that have so much more experience than me. It's intimidating and, being able to understand their intentions, I think, is really important. So you don't take it to heart. That's funny because you were the experienced React developer in that case. Oh, well. <laughs> that I was mean, literally the first React so I ever extra, wrote. Extra now Lucas is writing React Native. Good job, Margo. <laughs> <laughs> I learned everything I knew. <laughs> I guess, too, like the junior-senior thing, right? Like it can cut the learning curve, but then if they don't have enough back experience to understand like why you're doing it a certain way and mm-hmm. why you got burned the other way, mm-hmm. then they might not have that understanding to be able to like take that to the code they write on their own or different code that they're writing in different systems and stuff. Right. So it's almost like there needs to be a certain level of like, you've, you've played around with this and you've, or, or you've, you've sure. you know, spent the 20 hours a week for a certain amount of time uh, learning this stuff on your own. So that you have that background knowledge. You know. Well, I would keep pushing on what I was saying before that I think as a teacher, your job is to guide people through the process that you went through to give them the shortcut through it. Sometimes when we teach, we're just trying to give people the answer and it is really that path that you're trying to teach more than just the end, re- end result, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. asking questions and guiding rather than <laughs> type these commands. Yeah, or <laughs> code even, monkey. Yeah, no, exactly. Right? <laughs> As a junior, yeah, you don't want to feel like the code monkey, right? You want to be able to understand how they got to their answer, knowing what questions to type into Google. I mean, you can Google anything, but if you don't know how to ask the question, you're not going to get the answer you want, right? <laughs> yeah. I think there's definitely something to the if you spend a long time trying to solve a problem and you finally do, and then, you know, some little thing you got burned on, you know, that's, you're probably not going to forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you were saying, Brian, like, whereas if I just tell someone, Hey, do it this way. And I don't explain like how they might get burned. Um, that might not be as beneficial to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I certainly, and there's, when I find myself in times like that, where I may be like imparting some, some knowledge or experience on, with something to someone else. Um, if there is situations like that, I try to remember those and, and point out like, oh, why am I doing it this way? And, you know, if I did it this other way, here's maybe the pitfalls of doing it that way. Because mm-hmm. I think there is, yeah, there's a lot to that, that learning that can come from just digging into the problem yourself and trying to solve it. 
So I think like the first chapter, really the the overall message, I mean, the title of the chapter is professionalism, but the overall message for me was like, like really taking, taking ownership, taking responsibility for what you're producing, what you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about, you know, like you shouldn't be shipping something that you're, you know, not pretty confident is working right. And through and being backed up by automated tests and you don't need to waste people's time, you know, manually testing. This should be automated. And if your tests are automated, then it allows you to change the code over time. And, and he goes right into a story, right? About like he shipped some code without testing it. And then some data was lost or something to that effect. Right. <laughs> there were a few. The mom yeah. was involved in one of them. In the, yeah. In that, <laughs> in that uh, yeah. In, in the first chapter, that was one of the things that jumped out at me. So, and like I said, like if, for myself and earlier in my career by myself, like I, I couldn't see myself writing unit tests and, and, you know, being really confident. It's a lot of just manual testing in the browser because again, I was just trying to get it to work. So I think a lot of this stuff um, in terms of the professionalism, like you can, you can really level yourself up quickly. Like you said, um, from working with someone more experienced, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Plus the, uh, wasn't a part of that or from your notes, the, the you're responsible for your own learning. Mm-hmm. So while you can learn on the job, don't count on the employer. For sure, to, yeah. To, to, to it's like your, it's teach your career. You take, or, take, yeah. take ownership of it, right? Exactly. Well, and sorry, I'm rounding around, rounding back to what you were saying before. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that he says is you're responsible for doing the learning yourself. Mm-hmm. And if the employer provides it, it's great. Your employer not providing time to learn mm-hmm. is not an excuse for you to not learn. Oh, I, I think is, is really what he was trying to say with that or yeah. what he actually did say with that. Yep. No. Yeah, for sure. Take take uh, ownership of your career is was a big message there for me. And I think it ties in heavily too with just developing a passion that you really care about as well. I mean, if you really care about it, you're not just going to do it for work and then that's it. You're going to hang up. But when you go home, you're just going to like mm-hmm. not pay attention anymore, right? So um, I really think having that passion there kind of gives you that extra 20 hours, let's say, to your additional 40 hours of your work week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find there's a bit of a bit of a mixed message. And we, we talk about sometimes and we and relation to code reviews specifically, how we say like, you know, you are not your code. You know, if Lucas is reviewing uh, a pull request of mine and he has some comments, of, hey, I think you do this better. I'm not going to take that personally. You know, I'm, I'm not the same thing as my code. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think the message here from this chapter is like you, you do kind of need to own the code at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, having that attitude of like, ah, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not my code. It's really not good for anyone. And I think it's a really kind of unprofessional attitude. Well, he he has one. I don't know if it was from this chapter or another. Where he says, "If you if you write code that results in a bug that costs the company ten thousand dollars, you should you be should prepared pay. to pay the yep. company that ten thousand dollars." Yeah. Which whether that's meant literally or as mm-hmm. an example, I think it the result is the same. And I think certainly we've probably most of us have felt this. All of us have probably felt this before. If you're working with, you know, freelance client years ago in my case, where there's sensitive data on there, I'm thinking. How am I getting brought in the lawsuit here if mm-hmm. something happens? The whole time. Yeah. Literally the whole time. <laughs> so I think that's a good attitude to have in general on mm-hmm. these things. So Yeah, there is some due, some due diligence for sure. <laughs> and I even think it's, it's more about pride too, being able to deliver something that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some like I've met developers who are just like, ah, I don't need to worry about testing that. There's QA. QA, QA will find it. I'm like, no, you should be and embarrassed if QA finds something. <laughs> yeah, that's one of his yeah. messages, right? Yeah, QA yeah. should find nothing. Yeah. He's like, they, I saw him do a talk where he talks about some of this stuff and he said, uh, the QA people should wonder why, what they're there for, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. funny, but I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Yeah. Um, for sure. And another thing he talks about in that that kind of opening kind of professionalism chapter was uh, was really kind of understanding the business domain too. Mm-hmm. Right? 
and really digging in. Like you said, Lucas, um, you know, there's depending on the project you're working on, there could be some liability concerns, right? So you want to make sure you really understand the the business, what the problem you're trying to solve, you know, who your end user is, all that sort of stuff. So that that all kind of uh, comes into it as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a reality check for people too, because mm-hmm. even myself, I've thought, well, the client is the one who, like, it's the client's job to tell me what the business use is for this and describe it to me appropriately. But there is onus on you as the developer to understand that as well. Um, maybe not quite as much the first week of the project as the third, fourth, 10th month, whatever. But I think it is one of those things that you need to think in the background. I really need to be learning this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can you know that your code is doing what the client wants? Yeah. Well, it saves you time it. in the end. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Plus, yeah. And it, yeah, I could see where someone's like, oh, I haven't done anything for this industry before. It's like, fine, learn from the client. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you questions to better understand your thing. But yeah, you, you mm-hmm. as a coder should ask those questions. That's an interesting <laughs> question. If I, if I am working in a new domain, with a new client yeah. and I spend 10 of my 20 hours a week just learning about that business. Does that count for my 20 hours? Mm-hmm. I don't know why well, I don't charge or think anyone should charge hourly for one. So <laughs> <laughs> hourly billing is side discussion. A whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah, future episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's like if the client's happy with the value that you're producing in the remaining time, whatever that is, then yeah, then that's fine. But in terms of learning, like it's it's one of those things. How does that how does that stack up against learning our profession, learning the business domains? It's I would think it's part of requirements gathering, right? Which is the first step of like, software you know, development. So. To me, when you uh, circle back to when he's just talking about other professions, doctors and lawyers and stuff, mm-hmm. um, I kind of view it as like if I'm a general practitioner and you come in with some ailment, I'm going to try to find out everything about like what you're eating, what your exercise, what your sleep pattern, all these kind of things that might be factoring into it before I kind mm-hmm. of decide in the course of action. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's sort of analogous to to learning the business domain, right? Trying to gather all the information I think I might possibly need to, to make as informed a decision I, as I can mm-hmm. in terms of an implementation or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's a really great analogy too, because as you're trying to learn the very specifics of the business domain, like initially I first thought of, you know what, is this going to be a transferable skill that will be able to use in another project or something, right? But if you learn enough of their business domain and you do this multiple times with different companies, you can kind of see similarities and you can kind of use that in future mm-hmm. projects, right? Like, have mm-hmm. you been able to see this whole process by learning everyone's individual domains and compare it and prepare yourself better for a future project? You're asking directly? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's an open discussion question, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a business student and I was in accounting and I still use the stuff I learned from that every day here. Mm-hmm. I don't know the percentage of the day it serves, but yeah, most most businesses are modeled after, after another business. And I guess if you learn enough of them, then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess as working for a consultancy, by being able to work on different clients, it's easier to do so rather than working for a product company and you're stuck on one project for yeah. a long time, right? Where... I don't know if it's easier for you working consultancy. Nothing's easy for me. Oh, it's always worth. I don't know if that question made sense, but yeah. Well, it's it's like oh, sorry, it's like how people could think like oh, like productized services. So you write some code and then you like do that same sort of service or or you know whatever you're doing. Maybe it's scripting like migration from one thing to another, and you're like oh, I'm going to do the same thing for like ten different people. But then you'd like have better knowledge of the problem problem domain like their industry whatever challenges might come up and then it's cool because you can be like oh i know i i know that i'll be able to deliver this value to you or this end result but yeah that's more of like 
almost like a marketing, like, you know, reusing of code, <laughs> like doing less coding versus, uh, yeah, I guess new custom brand new code projects for new clients. It's of. funny because this discussion gets a little bit into some of the things I like most about the profession in general. Like I've worked with clients before where I don't know if you guys have had the same experience. You work with a client who's dealt with a very manual system in the past. They've never done anything computerized. The first job is actually understanding what they're doing. And a lot of the times they don't even know. So there's an operations component to, the, to this, which is really interesting because you come out at the end of the day and I don't know if I'd say technically your paycheck is representing the code you've written, but there's a like a major, major operations component to this as well, which, like I said, I went through business school and I never thought about doing programming as a profession back at that point. Yeah. But well, it, it lines up so well. Like, I understand why there's business and computing programs at universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of goes into how um, Uncle Bob was talking about, like, mentoring. And I guess even when we're dealing with clients, you have to kind of, because of you, you've had this experience with so many other clients, it's like you're teaching new clients that don't have this knowledge, mm-hmm. like how to do things, right? Like, is that how, how often have you had to go, go through that process where you had to like tell the client, Hey, actually the way that you've been doing it for X amount of time, there's actually like a way better way for you to do this. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're, you're going to teach them that directly. I think it's, I think it's more facilitating their own understanding Yeah, that, that you're doing. You're, I don't know. Yeah. I th- find that process is a lot about like, um, having hard and fast business rules, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've definitely been in those situations where you say like, okay, well, you know, when this happens, what should happen? And then the client says like, well, that's a good question. Or, mm-hmm. well, you know, when we get those orders, uh, if it's in Arkansas and it's on a Tuesday, we do it this way. And, you know, <laughs> and then, yeah, you get, you find, you kind of uncover some of those things that aren't as, as fleshed out and concrete as they should be. Um, and there is, I, I've found sometimes there's a bit of a challenge in, and getting them to commit to some hard and fast business rules, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of used to that manual process they used to have, right? Yep. And I think going back to what you were saying, Margo, there is, I find sometimes that aspect of, of having to train the client. I mean that in like just what would be the most effective way as you're you're building this piece of software for them that they can communicate their ideas to you and, and, and back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they might have one view of, you know, they come to you with a diagram and say, here's my application, build it, right? And you're like, well, you know, why don't we back this up? And really as a developer, what I want to understand is like, first and foremost, like what are your business process? What are the rules? How does this all work? And then from there, I want want to help you, you know, implement that in software, right? So quick question, I guess, for you, Margo, because you're the newest developer in the room. Mm-hmm. Have you felt like you've you've been in that point at that, like at that place yet in a project? Is the question... Have I been able to tell a client about a certain process that I'm maybe more familiar with that would kind of enhance their productivity? So, no, I guess my question is, thinking back in my own experience, probably the first two or three years, I was just focused on trying to write the code. Right. Yeah. Like, you kind of, okay, what's my base base requirements? And I lose sight of what those requirements are as soon as I get into the code, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, I think it takes a while before you get to the point where you're starting to think, you know, the code is just a language that I'm using to describe things. It's the descriptions that my job is actually filling, yeah. right? Like, have you ever felt that point where the code is kind of happening in the background mm-hmm. and the business understanding is the primary thing you're doing? Right. Do you think you're there yet? Like it... I, um, I wouldn't say I'm there 100%. A lot of those, 
I guess, kind of thoughts. I like to bounce off other people, especially mm. I don't want to assume that I know what I'm talking about as well at the same time mm. as I'm trying to learn. Like I'm still in school, so I feel like I'm still continually trying to question and learn the deeper understanding about things. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that I've reached that point yet, but eventually I'd like to. I think like, you'll learn way more once you're out of school. So Yeah, of course. Right? I mean, <laughs> That's oh, also a whole other school. discussion. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the whole point of, of me asking that is I think for somebody who's a new developer getting into this profession, like you, you use those first couple of years to gauge whether or not it's something you like doing. Mm -hmm. And the reason I ask or the reason I pointed out is because I think people maybe judge the profession or judge the industry before they're at a point where they should, mm -hmm. because your job in the first three years is not representative of what the job is going to be after that, yeah. at least not in my opinion. No, you start to realize that like maybe the understanding of the business requirements and coding the right thing mm -hmm. is like 90% of the work. <laughs> and well, then, and then just actually coding it is like the 10% of just like, okay, let's make this thing that I now understand the client agrees on actually mm -hmm. function. Right. Well, even even the system architecture, like I'm just starting to get into domain-driven design. I've never read anything on it before, and I want to use that approach for a project. And I think it's funny because you read all these programming books, and they seem like programming books, but really ultimately the programming books are giving you the tools to be able to describe things in a way that actually represents what you're trying to build, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I'm not trying to say anything profound. I'm <laughs> leading us down a weird path now. I was going to say it kind of rolls into the next chapter, which is mm -hmm. saying no, right? I don't know if we want to, because because ultimately the client will be like, "Oh, could it, can we do this?" Or mm -hmm. you know, and and you know, or it, it should do this, right? Or make it do this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think how do you do it? This topic kind of centered around interactions with clients and and trying to um, keep their expectations sort of maybe in line with with reality and and also. Maybe dealing internally if you're dealing with a product manager or, or something like that on a, on a product team, um, and just some general advice about like you know it's it's okay to say that's not possible, right? Is that mm -hmm. kind of a takeaway for people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, um, I, I think it, it was a similar point that was in the book, but a, a different presentation phrased it pretty well. Where you know, like, I guess when you're backed into a corner, like, can you get this done by like whatever? Mm -hmm. Uh, by end of day, you know, kind of thing, right? And the, the ultimate thing is to be like, yes, you know, if, if you're new, maybe you don't want to say no, you don't want to disappoint, even though you mm -hmm. don't have the facts. But it's also okay to be like, I, I don't know now, mm -hmm. but uh, give me till noon <laughs> and I'll look into it and then let you know if I can do it by end of day at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if it was mentioned in the book, but also the whole like under promise over deliver thing mm -hmm. is also terrible, because <laughs> if someone is just like, oh, uh, can you get this done like uh, by end of week? And you're like, no. And then they probably internally plan for that and like make sure that, mm -hmm. you know, okay, we're not going to have that. That's fine. They're telling the stickers. And then you swoop in and you're like, oh, I got it done, guys. Aren't yeah. I great? You know, and then they're like, oh, this is actually, that, that, that's actually really unprofessional as well. So I guess the whole, yeah. Uh, so is, you're saying that you, you don't like that approach? The, yeah. <laughs> oh, seriously. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, the, I, I, like you shouldn't, it's almost lying to them, right? Like if you actually intend to have it done by that time, like don't. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you happen to and it's like, a, hey, like I've managed to get it done. Is that still okay? Like do you still want it now? Yeah. That's I, fine. But I guess like the, don't say the opposite. I guess there's a difference between like, I'm pretty dang confident I'm going to have this done by Thursday. Right. Um, and then saying, no, it's going to be a month. <laughs> yeah, Versus like, you know what, realistically, I think this is going to be two to four weeks and just saying four or five weeks, right? Yeah. yeah. I think there, yeah, there is, a, there is a fundamental difference there, but yeah. I think you can create, you know, some, some good uh, rapport with the client though, if, if you're able to do that from time to time, right? I don't think that should be the norm, but 
It's yeah. more the communication being clear, right? Like mm-hmm. there, there shouldn't yeah. be like a, no, I will not get this done. Mm-hmm. And then, by, you know, and then b- before that time being like, oh, I got it done. Mm-hmm. Like there should be like something like, hey, actually, I see this other way of doing it and I think I get it done. So that's still mm-hmm. something you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd say that's ultimately about your motivations and the expected result of what you're doing. Because right. I think I think if you know that response A is going to get the clients to do client to do this and response B is going to get the client to do something else. And response B is what you're going for. You tell them the thing that goes for, for response B. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying being dis, dishonest. I'm talking about the under promise over deliver yeah. type thing. Like if if you know your client well and you say there's a good chance that I'm going to be doing it Friday, but it could be as far as Tuesday, which there's other chapters about this. Yeah. Um, if you know your client is going to say, okay, it's Friday, I can expect that that's going to happen. Not getting into the whole try discussion <laughs> thing. If you tell them that exact information and you know they're going to stick on it, I think you tell them Tuesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you keep them posted. Like yeah, as you get closer exactly. and closer to things, you keep transparent. I mean, there's lots of stuff in here about providing the most relevant information as quickly as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it shouldn't be a big surprise when something's going to end up getting delivered early yep. and vice versa. It shouldn't be exactly. a big surprise if something's going to be delayed, right? That should mm-hmm. be communicated because certainly things come up or, you know, they might ask other things of you that are just, you just have to put that thing to the side, right? And mm-hmm. hopefully they're, they're of the understanding that you can't be doing two things at once. So it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. I think um, this is certainly important too. And you're, especially you're trying to set that first impression on a new client, that first few weeks working with them, you want to be able to give them realistic expectations, but mm-hmm. also get a feel for what they're actually looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always in the consultancy. I always find that that phase of a project difficult, right? The first mm-hmm. few weeks, because ideally you want to come in and be delivering and just, you know, shipping code and, and showing them that, you know, they're getting value for um, for what they're paying for. But at the same time, that's that's the time where you know the least about the code base and <laughs> you're doing, you know, I almost want to, I've said it before, like it, it almost be nice to, you know, the first week of engagement with a client is for them not to expect any code to be shipped. Mm-hmm. And this is literally just like whoever's going to be working on this is familiarizing themselves with the code base, mm-hmm. digging around, asking questions, mm-hmm. you know, getting to understand that the code base and the business logic better, right? Mm-hmm. And then going from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sort of the the flip to that was something you'd mentioned was was the trying is dishonest, right, Lucas? Yeah. And I, I think that's that's probably I, I I certainly agree, Brian. If if you know you 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 know terribly over uh, terribly under promise and then over deliver, that's not a great thing. But I think um, probably more damaging than that is kind of the flip, right? Where a manager comes into you and says, you know, hey, could you have this done by Tuesday? And you you know you know you're not going to have it done unless maybe you drop everything. You say I'll try. Because I think human nature, that person's going to hear, yeah, it's probably going to be done. And they're going to report <laughs> exactly that to someone. And, you know, they're just probably ultimately asking you because they're just trying to answer to someone and get them off their back, right? right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of I, a lot of issues with with not being completely transparent either way mm-hmm. uh, with, with the status of things and realistically, you know, what you expect to get done in a given time. There's – I mean, there's lots of good stuff in this chapter, but – I'm not, I might have to abandon that one. <laughs> I, I, I think, okay, I got it again. I think really the biggest thing from this book, not just from this chapter, is we need to think a lot about our communication, like the very specifics about our communication and mm-hmm. what that's telling our clients. Yep. Um, I won't get into any of the try stuff, but the trying stuff is is very interesting, the way he talks about that and who that's putting the onus on and all those kind of things. I think personally, if I had to say like, of the books I've read, this is probably in the top three of things I'd recommend to new developers. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I would agree. It reminds me of something that he said in the book as well, something along those lines where 
I don't know if anybody can remember this, but being able to assert yourself properly instead of saying, I want to do this, I need mm-hmm. to do this, or something along the lines of The language, of language yeah. of success and lang- – I, I can't remember what the specifics were, but mm-hmm. – yeah. But it's interesting how people can interpret that, like, I'll try to have that done, how they <laughs> say, you know what, yeah, yeah. Uh, that means like part yes, so I'm just going to go with yes. Yeah. Well, it's those uh, negative thought patterns, maybe, is what you're talking about, like the should and must, yes, right? Because if you what, say yeah. should, mm-hmm. it's like it's instant guilt. It's like, oh, I should be doing this, right? but I'm not, so therefore – I feel bad. Well, and I go directly to friends that I haven't seen in a couple of years and I run into them and say, you know, we say, let's get together for dinner in the next month. And then let's is one of those things that's in there. Oh, Oh, really? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, let's get together for coffee. And then nobody sends the invite. Take a time. And then (laughs) it gets lost and all the other things you're trying to say yes to. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of the the flip of that topic was the next chapter saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the the general discussion in this this section was was around okay, let's say you've decided that there is a piece of work that's possible to do and you're going to do it. Um, where do you go from there? Kind of, um, yeah. Any any thoughts on that topic? I think this one this one is more about making your commitments and being accountable to your commitments. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, when you are saying yes. In order to give a confident yes, you need to have a bit of an implementation plan in place already for it. Yep. Um, and if you if you're saying yes to something without that implementation in place, then again, it's falling into dishonesty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think is fair. Yeah. Like if a client asks you for level of effort on something and you don't know where you're going to go with it, that's when you give like a five day estimate that ends up being three months. Right. Yeah. But I've heard him say the. The correct answer is I don't know if someone asks for an estimate, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's truly the case. And if they really want a number, you're going to get the the high end of whatever range I think it's in, right? Mm-hmm. Or that uh, technique of, yeah, which I just started to think at a conference earlier this year. Yeah, just be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you give me till whatever time, specific mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. you know, I'll give you an update uh, with, you know, what, yeah. what I yeah. think. You, know, you can give an estimate, know. estimate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 an estimate of the estimate before the estimate. And it's like booking a meeting to talk about the meeting that you'll have after. The yes. Meeting. Which does happen. <laughs> no. And I think kind of tying into this and, and the previous topic, um, let's say there's that, that phase where there's some new feature that you need to work on and you really don't know enough about the feature to, to get a grasp of even an idea of how long you think it's going to take. Mm-hmm. I think certainly the earlier you can dig into that problem and, and discover what you need to discover and get back to the client with any questions you might have, the better. Because mm-hmm. um, certainly uh, we've probably all faced situations where a client asks for something and it seems fairly straightforward. But then you dig into it a bit and you realize there's like something they've really overlooked and there's something that's mm-hmm. lacking that you need an answer from them. We need more from them. And I think if, you know, if you're handed a feature and you take a week to get back to them with that issue, that's, that doesn't look so great, mm-hmm. right? And especially if they're expecting, you know, work's being done. So yeah, it just the sooner you can kind of really dig into the headspace and the problem and then potentially point out any issues with implementation and get back to the client with that, I think the better. And it all just kind of ties back to that, that communication, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. commit to a certain time and then you're like, oh, shoot, there's this thing that we didn't think about or we didn't <laughs> include in the estimate or this is needed for the feature and that's that's going to push it back you know? yeah well and that's i think some of that comes down to asking the right questions when somebody comes to you with questions or like with a feature request or something too right it's not it's not necessarily i think the first question that you want to make sure you understand is why are you doing this like whose needs are you actually trying to serve with this feature make sure you understand that and make sure you do a little bit of checking against that to make sure that you're delivering what they want because again if we've got a decent amount of business domain knowledge 
we should be able to help kind of qualify those tickets before we yeah. actually start working on them. Yeah. Just ask why five times. <laughs> no. Actually, no, that is, I don't think we even <laughs> asked that. Yeah, if you if you ask the why, then you it just and maybe there's another thing. Oh, oh, see, so, so the real reason you yeah. want this thing is to do this. Well, could you just do this? That's already in the system. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. So, so well, and that why, gives you why is that, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> why is that, Dan? I don't know. <laughs> this will never end. Yet. Just ask why five times, why? even if you get to the answer. Just keep child. asking why. Why? Why? Yeah. why? Are we there yet? <laughs> Any other kind of takeaway topics on the that's kind of the saying yes in that discussion? I think we cover most of it. So then he kind of rolls into and, and some of the stuff we've already touched on, but coding itself, and I think kind of talking about sort of generally the environment that you're coding in and when maybe are, are good times to be writing code and when are bad times to be writing code and when's a good time to start writing your code and maybe when's not a great time to start writing your code. So same question, any high level takeaways from that chapter? Yeah. So uh, it's personal preference, which you can listen to episode 21 to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Was it episode 21? Yeah. I believe so. <laughs> like, I find this one funny because I think almost everything he says in this book is counter to what I would naturally do. Right. <laughs> I love writing at three in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just get into your groove. I was looking at that point too. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? Like, what does he really mean by that? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, let's just say like you work like a night shift of code. Like there's people that do that. So that obviously that point shouldn't be taken literally. But what would your definition of that be? Well, it's the whole point is don't code when you're exhausted, right. right? Like when you're writing code, you want to be in a good mental state so that you're able to do it. I think the other one that I like is when he's talking about in like don't code when you're in the zone. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the reason for that, which he may get into specifically, I don't know, is that you lose sight of you lose sight of what your problem actually is and you start thinking of what the problems you define for yourself is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what he talked about was the decision. You make bad decisions because mm -hmm. you just, you're just like, you're in the zone and you're yeah. just like, oh, I'm just, oh, I could just do this and whatever. And you just, it's like decision after decision just rolls into each other. <laughs> there's, there's, it's, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's word for word, but Kent back in TDD by example, he says he's, he's okay in that scenario of doing an aside, but you never do an aside from an aside. And I think you lose track of what that is once you get into a time of like a time of day or once you're like 15 hours into a session and you still haven't eaten or whatever. <laughs> Ten Red Bulls. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't completely understand what he was saying there. And I almost like, like, what are you talking about? Like in the zone is the best time to code. No. Right. right? Yeah. But like, I don't know, I, I guess I didn't really understand his message or maybe it's a, um, a matter of you know, his definition of the zone versus mine or something like that. It's but. more, you don't need to be in the zone, right? Like if you're doing, but well, yeah, you, I guess what is, what practice. is the zone for you, Brian? Like, yeah. that's, <laughs> it's, it's like, how do you define that? I guess maybe for thinking of the zone as no distractions, right? But it's more, so isn't, just, that, isn't that good? Like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's fine. I think his zone is like a level above that where it's okay. just like, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're just kind of on autopilot. You're just kind of like, going through the code and adding stuff and probably doing an aside to an aside to an aside. Yeah, it's hyper-focused. Yeah, and you start to get to a point where you're just like, yeah, I did, I finished the aside to the aside to the aside, but you still haven't, maybe you messed something up with the original task you were trying to do and you're touching a bunch of stuff at once because you're like, oh, I've got the whole thing in my head. I yeah. think that's this point where it's like if you're doing TDD, you're doing like testing as you're building the code, you're probably just doing one thing at a time. You're not going off on a bunch of different tangents because you're mm -hmm. in the zone and you've got the whole program in your head. I think that was the zone he was talking about. So it's like you shouldn't be like just touching a bunch of stuff because you think like, oh, this is going to everything will come together in the end because I'm in the zone. You should just be like focused on the one feature and like getting getting that done and then move okay. on to the next thing. Like to I me, think that was in my point. head to being in the zone is like 
I'm not, you know, distracted by things, you know, worrying about something non-work related or I'm not hungry or, or tired or, or angry about something, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. to me, being in the zone is, you know, when you've done, like we were talking about earlier, there's sort of that 90% of understanding the problem, mapping out a solution, maybe whiteboarding a solution. And then there's that 10% of like, okay, now I'm going to put it into practice. Mm-hmm. And to me, in my mind, the the zone is when you've kind of gone through that process and you've thought all that stuff through. And it might just be one feature you're building. Uh, but the zone is when like you've kind of gone through that and you've got everything kind of mapped out in your head of how you're going to implement it. And then you go ahead and, and implement it. And mm-hmm. that time where, you know, you're not, you're not feeling, oh, geez, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? How am I going to write this test? How, what pattern should I use here? Mm-hmm. It's when that, that stuff you've kind of, you know, decided and, and you're just sort of then just kind of focused on, on implementing a solution. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I just kind of felt like this was like sort of a, a contrary message <laughs> to what I think is maybe good advice. I, I think the way I would think of it is code critically, don't code emotionally, which okay. I think when you I get into a certain good. kind of flow, I think it's just I, f- I feel what the right path is for this. And you're not necessarily thinking about the whole picture. You're not you're not thinking about what the original tech described. You're not thinking about the business domain. You're just mm-hmm. like I'm I'm in a flow right now because I'm just doing something I didn't know how to do. And I'm right. happy about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there is that definitely I've fought that danger of, of just falling into something that I'm really comfortable with doing and maybe not critically thinking, like you said, if, well, is that the best solution? Yeah. And there's, there's later chapters that are talking about, mm-hmm. um, like you, you don't want to, what is it? A bog or a swamp or whatever. Like you don't <laughs> yeah. want to start heading down those, those endless paths. Making assumptions and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like what you're sounding like the zone is just, you've got it. You've got everything defined mm-hmm. while you understand the business domain, right? You're, yeah. you're not tired or hungry. And then you're going through and you're basically just implementing your plan kind yeah. of thing, right? As opposed to, like you said, uh, that's a good, yeah, emotional. You're, mm-hmm. you, the zone is, I think, in his definition, this emotional place of like, I'm just making assumptions and I'm mm-hmm. doing stuff that, that I feel is right. But yeah, my totally kind of initial interpretation, and I'm certain that wasn't his intention, was that like he was saying, like, if you feel like you're, you got a clear mind and you're ready to implement something, walk away from it and find something to get angry. <laughs> you know, go on Twitter and read about US politics and then come back to the problem. I was like, it's all about that, Bob. Yeah. I don't think that's what he no. meant. Okay. You're not um, my uncle. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a lot of, you know, just put yourself in, in a good mindset. He talks about music too, which and that was something that came up. Uh, a couple episodes on the podcast. Yeah, he was like, right? don't listen to the music because it'll yeah. put you in the zone. Because you'll it's end like... up with uh, com- code comments about Led Zeppelin and, <laughs> and Floyd and stuff. Um, yeah, I can't say I've, I've fallen into that trap myself, but I find the times when I, I think like we were saying earlier, Lucas, it depends what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Certainly the task at hand are times when I want to be more hyper-focused on what I'm doing and there are times where it's more just kind of busy work implementing a solution more, more or less. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, some of those times I find it more or less beneficial to listen to music. In general, I find, you know, music without lyrics is yeah. is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. when there's a, there's a song that I know the lyrics to, like I, I maybe sometimes hyper-focus on that, yeah. uh, where if it's just some electronic or whatever, it might be some jazz, whatever, you, whatever you're into that, that's just sort of background. Uh, yeah. It works for, mov- for movies for me too. Yes. Like I can, I can write code to Top Gun, no problem, because really? I've seen the movie 500 times. <laughs> 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 or Kenny Loggins for that matter okay <laughs> but I think yeah his point was that it could kick you into like for me electronic I because I enjoy electronic even if it doesn't have lyrics 
can kick me into kind of that emotional state where, mm. you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as focused on this. Based on his issue with music and writing code, I'd imagine that watching a movie or a TV show, he would probably have a seizure at that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just guessing. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure he's done it at some point. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but not <to> <laughs> looked at the code and went, oh, <laughs> what have I done? Um, so then, yeah, there are some, there's a couple other topics he touches on in that section uh, talking about, you know, how how to get help, when to ask for help, um, what to do with, you know, when when you deliver something late. I think certainly his message is that ideally should never happen, but from time to time it's going to for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And uh and sort of, you know, ways to ways to deal with that and confront that. And I think a lot of that probably goes back again to communication, right? Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with something, is something gonna be late? I, I want to communicate that as, as early as possible um, mm-hmm. to kind of head off any potential issues. Well and that transparency is the big takeaway there, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. And then this is sort of staying on the code topic. He goes into in the next section talking about test-driven development. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much needs to be said there in terms of uh, I think if you've read any of Uncle Bob's material, you're, you're pretty clear <laughs> on his views on test-driven development. And, mm-hmm. and like you said earlier, Lucas, that like his general um, sort of message is that if you're, if you're not doing test-driven development, you're not a true professional. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think – I think it's a little bit difficult with that because I think a lot of people can level up the quality of what they're producing by just testing, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about TDD a lot here, and I think being able to do TDD requires a lot of time learning on your own on how you describe tests and all those things. I, it's funny because I think when you look at TDD, the stuff I've read by Kent Beck mm-hmm. is actually way more lax than the stuff from Uncle Bob. Okay, Like Kent Beck says that you can take – you can take kind of learning to do TDD well, you start with the small steps so that you know how to do the small steps when you need to do small steps. Otherwise, you can like you could work for half an hour mm-hmm. and write code and then go back and do a test and move back and forth. Um, with Uncle Bob, it's like 30 seconds. You don't write anything until you've written the tests for it. Yeah, so filling test first, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I I mean, I Honestly, I've kind of worked on both sides of projects and especially mm-hmm. now with the front end style stuff. Like when you get into front end development, I find TDD is that much harder to understand how we're going to do it. Cause, it's tricky, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to do TDD on the CSS. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's a couple ways to do it based maybe. on screenshots, comparisons or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the front end stuff's definitely difficult. I find myself trying to relate like how would I how would I do this TDD style or you know what what would this look like in a PHP test and then mm-hmm. trying to relate that to like a test for the UI and I don't know that doesn't always it's not always smooth I find. Yeah Uncle yeah. Bob he does a pretty good job winning me over on these discussions though because mm-hmm. we all know that the only time you're gonna get really good test coverage is when you're making sure you're writing the test first on things. Mm-hmm. And testing does promote good design because then you have to do that segregation. And I just did something completely TDD yesterday, which normally I don't do the test first. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of afraid to admit that now. That <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are you now not a professional? Or, <laughs> we'll tell anyone in the office. <laughs> no, I like the one thing about TDD because I feel like it develops a plan, mm-hmm. right? And then once you get a plan, then you get in zone and then you're not supposed to be working in the zone. <laughs> but I mean, it gives you that um, agenda of like how to Hold your context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And documentation too, right? Like you can just look, you should be able to write, look at the tests and see what's supposed to be happening, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I guess the the discussion, uh, there's a lot of questions I have around TDD that doesn't necessarily need to come in this discussion. But number one, where does it need to be testing absolutely first? 
Like, I think you can still be doing test-driven development without necessarily writing the test first every time if the test is ultimately your deliverable on mm-hmm. things. I, I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Um, you talking about, like, I've certainly found times where I have an idea of the solution. I'll just, like, you know, spike out the solution and then write a test to support it and then maybe see that all works and then go back to the start and then write the test first and do it that way. Is that what you're talking about? Or I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you in the zone? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think we should just abandon that, that topic. <laughs> um, so then, yeah, just, just to keep the discussion rolling, then he goes into practicing mm-hmm. and, and, and building up your skills and his kind of views on, on how a quote unquote professional uh, should go about that. Um, so he does talk about in terms of practicing, he talks about his expectation of a software developer that, you know, you're obviously in a way practicing on the job every day, but he certainly also expects that there's going to be a level of, of practice and research and, and just knowledge gaining, um, outside of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, didn't he take a hard stance of like you practice on your own time, you perform on the job? I think something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. This big thing, which, yeah, I, I don't think I 100% agree with it <laughs> just because of the fact, especially in an environment where you're in an office with a bunch of smart people. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, and hopefully, and I guess that it expects an employer to give you mm-hmm. that opportunity, right? Because there are some where it's just like, no, you're in a cube, mm-hmm. you know, don't talk to anyone, like, code, code, code. Right. Like that, that kind of employer environment is not going to really be conducive to learning on the job. But right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is one of the chapters that I was really interested in hearing about people reading this from different experience levels. Because, I mean, like coming back to me as a beginner, learning about all the different things, because I don't have a lot of experience working like for a company. What do I do with all my free time? I'm not exactly sure. Right. But kind of having something where it kind of gives you guidelines or a bit of a foundation, I think is really important for new people to try to get into the industry and understanding, hey, how can I make use of my time and look like I'm being professional? Well, not just look, but actually act like one too, right? So <laughs> No, it's all about appearances. We That's what you learn as you become a senior dev. <laughs> oh, it doesn't okay. actually matter how good you are. It's how, how good you look. Okay, I'm learning. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. I'll remember that. <laughs> Don't remember that. For the practicing stuff, though, there was some interesting. I mean, I haven't spent a ton of time doing katas over my career. Like that's still a fairly new thing for me. I've thought about it as kind of exercises that you do to like just content for something to practice against. Mm-hmm. But the way he describes it as being like a, a musician or an athlete is something that you do over and over and over and over and over again to basically build muscle memory. I've never thought of it like that, and I mean that's a challenge that I haven't taken yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess the. The thought of doing the bowling game hundreds of times over, then that. <laughs> that's a scary thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it just reminded me of mobbing. How uh, like when we mob every single day, just being able to uh, work on kata challenges together, right? I mean, it's always going to be something new to learn, and being able to follow a certain process, especially if you're not too familiar with it, and mm-hmm. working together, you don't feel as intimidated when you're working with other people. Like everyone's trying to contribute and learn at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think those kind of challenges have really helped me and I think are really important for anyone that wants to get into this industry. It's a good demonstration too of once you do something enough times, you can do it pretty easily at any skill level, right? Yeah. Not saying anything about your skill level. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I know where I'm at right now. <laughs> That's okay. I'm accepting it. <laughs> So then he, he kind of continues on in the next couple of sections, um, talking about testing in general, testing strategies. Uh, he, he touches on specifically acceptance testing and how that's that's a good way for maybe to get, I'm thinking like all the stakeholders on the same page and for you to you know maybe drive out requirements uh, from the client 
Um, and then for the client to be able to verify that yeah, that's how they want that thing to work, right? Mm -hmm. Any takeaways from, from that discussion? We've got a favorite part. Yeah, what's your favorite part, Lucas? Uh, when he talks about the developer that writes the test should not be the developer that implements the requirement. That's interesting, yeah. I really like that because it means there's one less automated acceptance yeah. test that I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> it does make sense, right, that you don't have that conflict of interest between the two different people. Right. Um, yeah, that's. I don't know how practical that is i think that could be a bit of a bit of a challenge but it is yeah. really a neat concept and if anyone's ever uh there's the website exorcism.io um it's that kind of concept where you it's a bunch of different languages and you can check out these katas these exercises mm -hmm. and the general idea is that the tests are already written for you and now you're just writing the implementation so mm -hmm. that would be really something interesting to try though like really truly if you're pairing with someone and have one person write a test and then the other person try to implement it and maybe go back and forth that way that would be yeah. If, if nothing else, an interesting exercise, I think. Mm -hmm. And a fun way to make pairing interesting for everybody. Um, <laughs> and was one less chance of an assumption that one person mm -hmm. made being carried to the test they wrote and mm -hmm. it's wrong. And then that gets seen as like, oh, this is how it should work when really there was an assumption in there. And then the code reflects that. For sure. So then he goes on and he talks about time management. Um, and I think probably a lot of these topics we've at least indirectly touched on though, right? Yeah, like the um, whole Pomodoro technique. Yeah, how, how to maybe break up your work, what's what's effective strategies for, I guess, not staying in the zone because you don't want to be there, but <laughs> what are effective strategies for keeping you on task and but also giving your your mind and body the, the break it needs intermittently through the day? You know, we've talked about that, that topic before, you know, good sleep, drinking lots of caffeine, mm. <laughs> exercise, all that kind of, you know, general life adv advice stuff. Any any thoughts on time management, everyone? We need a nap room. That's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my favorite part about being here is we have all these snacks provided to us. So just get up and then walk to the side Cola, of the office, sugar. grab some snacks, come nice back plug. to the desk. <laughs> you burn about 1.5 calories walking over there and then consume about yeah. much <laughs> It's funny. I think it goes back to the doctor, lawyer, accountant, like general professional description and mindset in here i thought it was really interesting his talk about meetings for like you should decline meetings that you shouldn't be in and you should yeah, feel free really to get up and leave meetings that don't make sense for you oh man that would be so nice <laughs> you know yeah that was actually such a great topic that he brought up because i remember when i read this book after reading that chapter i was like I would go to every single meeting because i'm brand new i'm so excited i'm excitable about everything that everyone has to talk about and then i'd leave the meeting and i'd you know what? Was there a better way of using my time? Mm -hmm. Did I really benefit going sitting in this meeting? <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? And yeah, it just puts you into focus. And especially when you're too eager to do things, you like you should really check yourself really <laughs> more than anything. Or even just having a clear agenda. Like just yesterday, I'm just like, so what do you want to talk about in this meeting? You know, because <laughs> it's basically, hey, can we grab a thing? I'm like, sure. You're like, this is time work for you. Great. Talk to you then. I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, what are we, <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> and then another one where, yeah, like get up and leave. I, I didn't just get up and leave because now there's video so they could see you leaving. <laughs> it's not just like there's no audio. But I basically said, it's like, yeah, so yeah, I, we tried to have the agenda set ahead of time, but it, it turns out, yeah, you should really have this person in this meeting. Like we're, that, we're not going to contribute. That's a relationship thing though, right? You, you can't just suddenly someday realize that, oh, I read clean code or now I'm going to start leaving meetings. It's something that you've got to build that expectation going into things like yeah. saying, you know, we recognize all our time is valuable. We're going to work on this going to meetings. If somebody needs to excuse themselves because the agenda has shifted, mm -hmm. whatever. I think that's a longer term thing that you've got to build up with people just to make sure everyone's got the right message on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I find in a consultancy that it's always, or it is sometimes a challenge where, um, 
if the client wants me to be in a meeting, ultimately I'm going to be in the meeting because mm-hmm. they're paying the bill and, and you know, that's how it should be, right? They, they should dictate, you know, how, how the work gets done and, and that sort of thing. But I, I do find there are some times where like, or, or I've had the realization that you shouldn't assume that that's because the client wants that that's maybe like the quote unquote best thing for the project or that's the, the thing that's most ideal in terms of like, you know, moving the software forward. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there is something to that in terms of, I don't know if you want to push back, but going back to what you said there, Brian is, yeah, there's definitely times where there's been some meeting scheduled and I'm thinking like, we had a long meeting yesterday. Like, like I really don't see anything new to discuss today. Um, so yeah, just, I, I find to try to do that as diplomatically as possible, but sometimes, you know, just drop a message in Slack or email, whatever the case may be, you know, Hey Lucas, uh, you know, what did you want to cover in today's meeting? Um, one to maybe prep myself a little bit. If there's certain discussion topics that, that need to come up, I need to do a bit of research. Uh, but also too to like get the client to like really critically think about mm-hmm. what what they're talking about, and then also times I found that you know if I know that the client wants to cover A, B, and C, I can maybe like put together a quick little summary, fire that over, and maybe that'll like you know cut the meeting in half because they've already got a bunch of the answers they're looking for. So or squash it all together. Like or squash I, it all together. It's yeah. surprising how easy yeah. that is to do sometimes. Yeah, ultimately they're just looking for you know a point form list of of what you're tackling that day, and mm-hmm. maybe just fire that over to them instead of having a twenty minute discussion and, mm-hmm. and dictating to them. And he kind of goes on from there. He talks about estimation again. Um, and then we've touched on that in, in previous episodes and I think earlier in this episode. Some of the the issues with that and and not firmly committing to things. Yeah, any any thoughts on estimation? Well, I think the, the end of the chapter he gets into it's better to take a large task and break it into smaller tasks. And For sure, yeah. I'm sure I've heard some other, to- some other as time. As granular that, as possible, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. If you give story point estimates on a project mm-hmm. or you break it down as fine as you can and give everything a one story point, yeah. you're usually yeah. just as good either feel- way. I feel a lot more confident telling you how long it's going to take me to install a toilet than to build your house, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> for sure, for sure, yeah. Break it down and, yeah, then, yeah, the smaller the task, I think the the easier estimation gets, right, in a way, or the more accurate you can be in the long run, I think. Mm-hmm. Then it's if there are dependencies or, or uh, you know, like bugs get introduced like and, and thrown into a sprint, then that can throw yeah. off like a time estimate, which is, which is why story points should not be uh time equated to time <laughs> it's like 21 points is two weeks and five points is a day right like mm-hmm. that doesn't actually it's just relative complexity right? mm-hmm. yeah. and then in that that same estimation topic he kind of goes into the the next section where he talks about like the pressure that comes with that and sometimes the pressure that comes with committing to something and and cautioning people against you know if you are going to commit to something you should you should be pretty confident in that you're going to be able to deliver that thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i was just thinking about that i mean by being able to break down your tasks into smaller tasks, it definitely alleviates a lot of the stress that a lot of people feel when they're trying to get like the tickets done in a certain amount of time, right? With story points. I feel like when you're really trying to nail out like everything is worth three points and then everyone starts getting stressed out because they can't be able to get give those deliverables on time, it just, I don't know. So I guess kind of going back into like breaking things into smaller tasks, that can kind of contradict like the pressure, I guess, right? Yep. Yeah, the pressure side of things, I think, again, it runs counter to what most of us would naturally do. Like, if I'm under a deadline and there's only two hours to do something that would be a longer job, my first inclination would be, I'm going to do the test later. Or I'm going to stub something out without really spending that extra time to plan. And I mean, I don't know if I would actually do that in most Mm -hmm. cases or not, but his message here is make sure you stick to those things that you know are right 
going into that. So when you know you're stressed, make sure you still write your tests. Make sure you spell to, still spend the time planning. Probably do your refactoring. Like he talks about keeping your code as clean as possible, basically, so it doesn't bite you when you come out of that stressful situation. Yeah, there's a real, a real discipline to not maybe falling back into bad habits all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when we're under pressure, that we don't we don't cut corners mm -hmm. for sure. Um, <clears throat> any other any other thoughts on kind of the pressure section? And I guess kind of the last the last really few sections of the book, um, he goes into talk talk about like collaboration. Um, teams, effective ways of getting teams to work together, defining roles within a team, how to level each other up within the team, um, how to work effectively on, on the same piece of software. Um, what were what were the general general takeaways from that sort of last section of the book for people? Yeah, like a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, for me, I think these last three chapters were really important for me building myself with the team and being kind of the the person that gets so much support from the rest of the team, having that solid foundation just kind of makes me feel a lot more sure about being in this industry and being able to find the right people to kind of lead me in the way that I want to be led. So it really hit close to home, actually. Pretty much, I mean, the same with saying no, but these ones I think are really important when you're starting to learn about the industry and learning about yourself. I think that really helps me more than anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh I mean I like I like the last chapter because he talks about different forms of mentorship. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about just sitting and observing somebody or reading a tutorial that somebody has written. It it I don't know, it gives you some more avenues for mentoring, like understanding that sitting in front of somebody and talking through what you're doing or just sitting Letting somebody sit over your shoulder while you're doing something on your own can serve as a form of mentorship. Sure. I think I yeah. think that does depend on the person. Like if it's somebody who's not going to stare intently at your screen mm -hmm. trying to figure out what you're doing, the observation thing isn't going to work as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I think maybe the message that I would take from that is pay attention to how the people you're working with learn how, yeah. and make sure that that's the direction that you're providing. Because if... If teaching is your main goal to doing something with somebody else, you should be you should be focused on that, I think. Yeah. We've had discussions here about like different purposes of different working arrangements and making sure that you're serving that purpose. Don't don't delude yourself into thinking you're doing something else with it. For sure. Because you'll do neither of the things well then. Yeah. Yeah. But. It goes back to like the different learning styles, right? And maybe mm -hmm. understanding your audience in a way and and hopefully tailoring whatever mentorship you're giving to Maybe the way that, that works best for that person. Too. That, that wasn't a Laravel pun, right? Oh. Tailoring. <laughs> Sorry. No, it wasn't. It's horrible. <laughs> I am a dad. <laughs> um, yeah, you know it's a dad joke when when it's fully grown. Uh, get it? Grown? Oh. <laughs> like it's a terrible joke, so you yeah. groan. Are you sure me. you're not a dad, Brian? No. I don't think so. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mean, there's, there's a lot of topics in this book that, like I said earlier, I think really hit close to home. And, and I think a lot of us can relate to and things either we've, we've dealt with directly or indirectly. And, um, yeah, I think like you said, Lucas, this is, this is a great resource, probably something that I wish would have been put in my hand day one as a developer. I think, um, I probably would have set a little bit better foundation than maybe I just set for myself when kind of left to my own devices. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Dan, like we've covered so much of this book, I feel, but at the same time, I feel like everyone would really benefit just reading it from start to finish by themselves. Like 
it doesn't take too long. Like, I don't know, there's maybe 150, 180 pages or something mm -hmm. like that. It's quick. Yeah, yeah. It, I felt like it was pretty quick, and I, I, I felt engaged reading it. The I think it's time. a it's a book too that you can almost pick up and just read one chapter at a time, or just even pick a random chapter. And um, mm -hmm. the topics are they're, they're related in some in some respects, but but you don't necessarily need to read chapter A before you read chapter B. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, cool. Any uh, any final thoughts on software professionalism? <laughs> Inspiring words of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, once again, Lucas and Brian, thanks for coming in today and uh, having this discussion with us. And uh, we'll talk to everyone again soon. Thanks All for right. having us. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Need more Torqued? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast service. If you'd like to help us out and give us some feedback on the show, feel free to leave us a rating and a review. We're online at podcast.vehicle.com and on Twitter at Vehicle. Hit us up by email at go at vehicle.com. I'm Margaret Tavares. I'm Dan Sapelsa. Catch you next time. Happy coding.